Uh, let's go into God's Word this morning. Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter number 3. We have two letters left when we're dealing with these letters to the churches. And our goal has been to see through the eyes of Jesus what He sees in the church. Not everything I believe that we have seen has been prescriptive for us as far as what we see in our church, or maybe so, I, I don't know. Search our hearts and God show us uh, truly. But we have certainly been in places where God has revealed things in our own lives and things that we need to correct and things that He has to say to us. And today is no different. We go to Revelation chapter number 3, verse number 7, and we look at the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And I want to speak to you this morning on a church that went on in weakness. A church that went on in weakness. Revelation 3 verse number 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my Father out of heaven and my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A church that went on in weakness. In his book, Weakness is the Way, J.I. Packer tells of an old Peanuts cartoon. Now, some of you kids may not recognize Peanuts, but it's Snoopy. It's Snoopy and Charlie Brown. Okay, I just want to make sure, because you know some people don't know the name of that cartoon. It's Peanuts. What was in the newspapers? Peanuts. And in this, in this uh, cartoon, Lucy asked a glum-looking Charlie Brown what, he is what he's worrying about. And Charlie Brown said, I feel inferior. And Lucy said to him, oh, you shouldn't worry about that. Lots of people feel, or feel that way. And to this, Charlie Brown asked, what, that they're inferior? And she said, no, that you're inferior. <laughs> His, his worst nightmare was coming uh, to pass. In this illustration, J.I. Packer goes on to say, this cartoon illustrates how easily those who rightly or wrongly think themselves strong can rub in 
and make fester the sense of weakness that others already have. You know, the world in which we live today has wholeheartedly embraced that which is strong, that which is sufficient, and is the poster child of what we're to be. We are supposed to be a people that are continuously young, strong, and have it all together. That's what the picture of the world says we're to be. But it isn't long before failures and fractures in our body and behaviors reveal that we are not made of steel. And if truth be known, we are all somewhat weak, particularly that can be said of those of the Christian faith. We must remember that Jesus offers us a mindset that is altogether different from the world's mindset. For example, the world would say in order to lead, you've got to rise to the top and flex your muscle so that people would fall in line. But the ethic and the teaching of Jesus is that to be a leader... You've got to be a servant of all. To be reached toward God, you must disown all the world offers. To be first, you must be last. And to be strong, you've got to be weak. And that's what he told the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had cried out to the Lord several times in about a certain issue. He called it a thorn or a plague upon him. He cried out to the Lord to help him on three separate occasions. And Jesus' final response was that my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Jesus teaches it clearly that weakness is a place where God's strength is made perfect. And I believe that that is a picture of what we see at the church church of Philadelphia. Here is a church that by all outward indications is a weak work. They're not strong. And yet Jesus gives it some of the strongest words, strengthening words to the church. In verse number 8, Jesus says, You have but little power. And yet it is in this church that is only one of uh, only is one of only two that were given no words of rebuke and it is this weak church small and insignificant in the eyes of the world which is given such a grand opportunity in all the other letters you never see Jesus looking towards a bright future or an opportunity for this church but this weak church Jesus is saying I've set open a wide door A place for you to do a great work. You know, we can all learn something from this church. Our weaknesses do not exclude us from being and doing great things in the sight of God. Little is much when God is in it. On the contrary, it affords us the opportunity uh, if, if we hold to what Jesus reveals in this letter to do great things. All of us, every one of us, this church particularly, has the opportunity to do great things for God. 
even though we may be perceived by everyone that runs up and down this highway in front of us as a weak work, as a broken shell of what was. Listen, we have a great opportunity for God to use us by listening to and applying three truths from this text. So I I want to give you three truths and then we'll be done. Number one, I want you to see first of all the words that weakness need to hear. The words that weakness need to hear. You know, more and more in our day and time, doctors are aware of how the remedy of many of the body's ailments go beyond the scalpel and the needle. A positive environment. Words of affirmation, spiritual and mental wellness are often seen as something that has a tremendous effect on a person's overall health and well-being. Their ability to fight off sickness has more to do than what's going on physiologically within the body. There is something to be said of the mind and the spirit being, being strengthened to help fight off infections in the body. Here, Jesus gives those kind of words. He gives words of affirmation. He gives words of comfort to this church at Philadelphia. This weak work, this sickly work, Jesus gives it exactly what it needs. Number one, we see the description Jesus gives. In verse number seven, the first thing that He gives them in order to strengthen them is who He is. Words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. Notice we see here, if you'll recall, it is Jesus that is speaking in these letters. All through this, Jesus is speaking and John is recording. And so here John is writing in that second person and he's writing these words uh, to the churches that Jesus is saying. And so John is the recorder, but, but Jesus never introduces Himself as Jesus of Nazareth. You notice He never does that in any of the letters. He never says, oh church at Pergamum, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He never introduces Himself by that name, but He gives attributes of who He is that clearly define who He is and never presents His name outright. You know, some of my favorite books are the five-volume set. I just got the last one the other day. I got the whole set of the original hardback books from Charles J. Rolls. In those books, he goes through every title, every type, every name that is ascribed to Jesus and elaborates on them beautifully. And if you go through those books, there are hundreds and hundreds of names given to Christ in the Word of God, and each one tells us about who He is. Most of our lives could be chronicled in three or two or three uh, volumes. Uh, You take, for example, the life of John Newton. All of his works, his life story, everything about him, uh, Banner of Truth, has it on sale. It's about a four or five volume set of the complete works of John Newton. You know, most of our lives could be summed up in maybe one volume, as many as four volumes. Uh, but the volumes of the, life, of the person of Jesus, John said, if everything was written that should be written about Jesus, it would fill the whole earth. Here is the one whose name is above every name, who is 
incomprehensible in who He is in His character. And to this weak little church, He comes and describes Himself. And how does He describe Himself? He describes Himself, first of all, as holy. Holy. Holy is not a popular word in our easygoing, laid-back, casual atmosphere. Holy is a word that calls us to stand at attention. Take a step back. Holy is a word that would even call us to bow down, to go to our knees. It is a word of awe. It is a word of reverence for the person of God. The Old Testament is replete with descriptions of God as holy. In Isaiah's day, when he saw the Lord after King Uzziah died, he's given a vision of God in His throne. His train filled the temple. And these angels were around the throne of God, crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. Jesus is often recognized by those demons that possess the bodies of individuals in the New Testament as the Holy One of God. Jesus, and I, and I want to say this eloquently because I can be misunderstood here, but, but Jesus is not your pal. He's not your buddy. He's not your compadre. He is holy. Now, He's not so holy and lofty that He is not touched with the feelings of our infirmities that, that we can identify with Him. That he is, He's not so holy and untouchable that we cannot approach, but we must remember that He is holy. He's holy. And should be seen as such. Here is a church that is being approached by the Holy One of Israel. Not just some local guy, not just some, uh, some other guy, but here is the God, the Holy One, coming to them to speak to Him. And then also He describes Himself as true. He said, uh, the true One. John MacArthur said in his commentary, He is true in Himself. He is the author of truth. He is the revealer of truth. The one, the true one, the genuine one, the real one, the true Messiah, the true Son of God, the genuine God, the one who is truth in all He says, truth in all He does. He's the one that measures this church in His fiery eyes of holiness and truth. You think about this church. You know, we've often talked about, I think we talked about last week, we talked about Sardis and its reputation as being a live work. And I, and I pictured before you, I pictured before you, you know, the, the local uh, Christian uh, Pastors Association. You know, they get together in Thyatira and uh, Smyrna and Pergamum. They're over in the corner and they see the pastor of Sardis come in. They say, Ooh, boy. Man, Sardis, man, they on fire down at Sardis. I'm telling you what, they got a great opportunity down there. They're doing such a great thing. And what did Jesus say? Sardis, you're dead. You've got a reputation that says you're alive, but you're dead. Well, imagine that same group standing over in the corner of Thyatira and Pergamum and Smyrna. And, they're sta- and then all of a sudden the church at Philadelphia comes in. He just kind of comes in. He's ashamed of the size of his church. He, He just kind of comes in the back, hopes nobody says anything to him. He just wants to be there and get out. He don't want to talk about how good his attendance is. He don't want to talk about how many souls he's had saved this year. He he, he don't want to even describe what's going on down at his church. We're, we're We're just so weak. We're just not doing well. I can imagine those in the corner. Oh, my word. 
Boy, they're struggling down there at Philadelphia. I'm telling you, there ain't much left of them. It's going downhill fast. And here Jesus comes, the one who is holy and true, who sees what they can't see. He says, I have set before you a door that you can't even imagine that is so wide that nobody else can close it. Uh, and, and I open it and nobody else can close it. Here's the one looking at them. The holy and just one. The true and righteous one. He has his eyes set on this church and he sees what no one else sees. And for a church that is desperately cleaving to him, these words are like medicine. Like strength. Can you imagine when the pastor at Philadelphia got his turn to read these letters, I imagine he cried hot tears about what his church is facing and who they are as a believer. Oh, what strength can be drawn from the description of Jesus. Then, then we have the domination Jesus grants. Look at verse number 7. He said to the angel of the church at Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. You know, this is very reminiscent of an Old Testament story. You go back to the writings of Isaiah. Isaiah, in his book, refers to a time when an individual named Shibna, Shibna, who was in charge of the Judean king at the time. Isaiah was a prophet to the Judean area. And Shibna was, we could think about him as like the chief of staff. Uh, You know, like the chief of staff in in the president. He's the one that kind of determines what the president will see, what he'll talk about, where he'll be. You know, he kind of filters through and allows certain people in to see the president and other people not to. Well, Shibna was of that category. And evidently, Shibna withheld all access to the king by the prophet Isaiah. He, he didn't have somebody, this, this king didn't have somebody like, like Nathan coming to him saying, Thou art the man, or, or another one of those prophets that you had access to David that would come. No, this chief of staff said, those prophets aren't coming in here. You're not going to talk to this king Isaiah prophesied that the Lord would replace Shibna with a man named Eliakim. Listen to what he said in Isaiah 22:22, and you'll see the resemblance. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. Did that sound familiar? That is exactly the story and the position that we find the Lord Jesus here. Eliakim would be a kind of gatekeeper with the power to control entry to the royal kingdom. The king's steward, he would decide who would and who would not have access to the king. Here Jesus is giving a clear indication that He's the key of access holder. He's the one that gives access to the Father. What did He say in John 14, 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. He's that gatekeeper. He's that one that says no and yes. He's the one that gives opportunity. He has sovereign key to kingdom authority. With Christ there is no locked doors. There are no places that are off limits. Jesus shows this weak church that there is nothing that lies outside of His ability. 
Every door, Philadelphia, every door that you think is shut to you, Jesus is reminding them, I've got the key to it. I'm the one that opens and closes it. Those other churches aren't in charge. Those Jews in your city, so-called Jews in your city, are not in control. I'm the one that's in control, Jesus says to them. He encourages them with the description of Jesus gives. The dominion Jesus grants. Also the defense Jesus guarantees. Look at verse number 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Woo! Harsh words. Here, Jesus uses similar language as He has in other letters. We've talked about this in weeks previous. These Jews He's referring to are Jews in a sense. He says that they they say they are Jews and are not. What is He talking about? He's not talking about ethnically. He's not talking about being a descendant of Abraham. He is talking about what the true Jew is, and that is the person that praises God. Judah Judah is worshiper of God. And so therefore, we as the people of God, we're not ethnically Jews, but we have been grafted into that line, and we are worshipers as a wild olive branch, brought into that line of worshipers of God. And Jesus is saying, you, you know, you've been getting all this trouble from the Jews and so-called Jews in your area, but you're the true people of God. Galatians goes into this in detail. We don't have time to go into it now, but Galatians is clear. The true Jew are those that worship Jesus Christ, are those that are saved by God's grace. Well, uh, although they did not believe this, and, and here's the picture, here's what was going on at the time. Jews and Christians in that late first century kind of had an amiable agree to disagree. Let's just get let's just let alone and get along. The Jews stayed to themselves over here, the Christians over here, and they kind of had a separation, but it wasn't frictionous. Well, in AD 97, an edict was issued from the Jewish religious leaders which announced that Christians were to be considered dead. And they were to be completely disowned. From that edict, it became open season on any Christian. They actively persecuted and harassed Christians. Here, Jesus is assuring this weak church that their protection that the protection of the Son of God was upon that little word. And that they would be a, a day, there would be a day of vindication where the enemies will know that the church is the true bride of Jesus Christ and the Son, Jesus, is the beloved Son of God. Verse 9 reminds us also of the name of Jesus. He, ta- he said they will bow before you, but the only reason they'll bow before you is because they're bowing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, and that every tongue shall confess, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day every knee will meet the ground. One day there's a day of vindication, little work, Little church, don't be discouraged. There's coming a day of vindication. I tell you what, it is words like these that will breathe life into weakness. That will take weakness and make it strong by the power 
of Jesus Christ's words. We have words that weakness needs to hear. But then also, the will that weakness needs to have. The will that weakness needs to have. In verse number 8, Jesus says, I know thy works. Again, whether the letter is bad or whether the letter has been good, whether it had an overall commendation or whether it had overall condemnation, Jesus sees the works. Jesus sees what's going on in these churches. There's no church so small, so frail, so feeble that falls out of the view of the Savior that bought it with His own blood. This church was feeble and yet it was not without qualities that Jesus commended. Now these qualities show us the will of this weak work. They had a will. They had a desire. Notice first of all, we see their alertness. Latter part of verse number 8, it says, And you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Notice the word kept here. It's a word that means to guard from loss or injury. To keep an eye on. Upon. It's a military. It has a military meaning of standing watch. The strength made perfect in weakness is an alertness and a vigilance over His words. The words of Jesus. The Word of God. Let me, let me put it this way. There might be the attitude that when you're weak and you're small and you're seen and perceived to be weak, it may be the attitude of, what's the use, you know? Maybe we ought to loosen up a little bit. You know, maybe we should just kind of take a back off of some of the things that maybe we've been holding tight to in the, in the Word of God. Maybe try to open those doors up a little bit more. And if we were a little bit more amiable to the world around us, then, then we might, you know, grow a little bit. We might have a little bit more. But that's not where the commendation came. The commendation came even though you were shrinking, you were small, you were weak in the eyes of the world. You kept vigilance over the words of Jesus, the Word of God. There's something to be said about that church. We may, for all intents and purposes, we may shrink even smaller before it's all said and done. But never let it be said that we took our eyes off the Word of God, that we didn't stand guard and we're vigilant. That's what happened at, Thy, at, at, at Thyatira. That's what happened at Pergamum. You remember Pergamum's where they came in the back door. Thyatira's where they, the false teaching came in the front door. They weren't being vigilant. They weren't keeping God's Word. That's what this word, uh, this church at Philadelphia was doing. They were keeping God's Word. Several years ago, I don't even know if Grayson remembers this, but several years ago we were traveling to Chicago. I was going up there to preach with some friends that invited me up there. And we stopped with some people that were I had pastored in Kentucky on our way up that I had pastored years ago. And we stayed with that family in their guest bedroom. Good to see them. I hadn't seen them in years. And one thing is they had a large Rottweiler dog. When I say a Rottweiler, I mean a head like this big. I mean to look at it, it just looked like a gigantic monster of a Rottweiler that they had. And it was a very well-trained dog. Well, one night, we, Carrie and I were in the guest bedroom. Grayson, I think, was sleeping on the couch in the living room. Grayson, for whatever reason, got up in the middle of the night 
and was tiptoeing, trying to come into the room, whether he had to say something to Carrie or myself, I'm not sure, something was wrong. He was tiptoeing down the hall, and at like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, that Rottweiler started barking loud enough to shake the windows. It scared the living daylights out of everybody in that house. Listen, that is the alertness that we need to have as the church of the living God. Your greatest strength as a weak church may be, may well be that you can tell the difference between friend and foe, between false and true. Why do you think I as your pastor put so much of an effort into preaching what the Bible says and trying to dissect what the Bible says rather than my feelings, rather than popular opinion around us, why do you think it's so important for me to do that? Why do we spend so much time in a Wednesday night Bible study trying to look at words in the Bible and what do they mean? Why? Because we need to make sure that if there's anything tiptoeing through the back door of our hearts and minds or in our church that we bark like a junkyard dog when somebody wants to try to twist the truth. Here, that's what he is saying. You recognize, you kept guard over the truth. Their alertness. And then their allegiance. Their allegiance and Verse number 8, he said, I know you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse number 10, because you have kept my word and your and a word about patient and you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. They have not denied the name of Jesus. That was the point of contention. In the day and time in which they lived, that's what it was all about. Did you say Caesar is Lord? Or did you say Jesus is Lord? To say Caesar is Lord is to deny the name of Jesus. But they kept their allegiance to that name above every name. Notice that he talked about the patience. He, he said, you kept my word about patient endurance. This is the patience of the Lord Jesus. The patience that He had when He endured the contradiction of sinners. His patience that bore the ridicule of His own countrymen. The patience that upheld, uh, that held up under the brutality of the cross. That is the patience that they had. They were patiently enduring the contradiction of sinners. The persecution, those things around them that forced and pressed Upon them. Notice he gives them a promise that he would keep them, guard them, protect them out of the lower, uh, out of the hour of trial that was to come on the whole earth in a, in a narrow sense. I believe this may, this may well uh, be a, a prognostication or a, a prophecy in the short term. In the day and time in which they lived, uh, Diocletian was just around the corner after, after this first century and around in the second century. At the end of the second century, I think it's when Diocletian came in and Diocletian brought over the whole Roman Empire a horrifying, horrifying persecution of Christians. Christian scriptures were burned. Churches were destroyed. The name of Jesus Christ was attempted to be stamped out all over the Roman Empire. I believe in the short term, in the 
in the very practical sense in the time in which they lived, this was the persecution to come. But I believe in a very real sense, this is a picture of the deliverance of the church through great tribulation, which he will discuss and go into in the prophecy of the book of Revelation in the end time. A time of worldwide wrath that is to come and during the reign of Jesus Christ, at which time God will, at one point or another, whatever you believe about the apocalyptic thing, one point or another, there is a rapture. There is an ejection from this world. Whatever time that means, there is going to be a snatching away at some point during that time. And here we see Jesus promising to preserve them in the midst of tribulation. Their alertness, their allegiance, also their awareness. Look at verse number 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. They were very much aware that what they saw going on around them was not the end of the story. That beyond the veil of tears and sorrow in this life was a land, was another land, another life, another experience. And Jesus is telling them, hold on. This is not some passive float along, you know, like I talked about last week. All I heard, all I heard for the last week is they want to go to a water park. Y'all remember that illustration I talked about the lazy river last week and how, you know, some Christian's life, I got to do it again. Some Christian's life is like a lazy river. They just kind of spin on donuts all around. And then some people's Christian life is the way it's supposed to be. As you're on the Oconio River, you've got a helmet on. You got, you're holding on with a white knuckle grip for, the, for the, all of your life. Listen, that's the kind of hold on, Jesus is saying. A white knuckle. Hold on to the faith once delivered to the saints. Hold on uh, to, uh, to the... There is a crowning day coming. A day of reward. A day of glory. He speaks about in our text. Oh, how many fights are lost in the final round. How many games are lost in the closing seconds? How many races are lost in the last leg of the race? As sure as we can win a crown of reward, we can surely miss out and suffer loss. Jesus is telling this church, and they're aware of it, to hold on. There's a crowning day coming. There's a day of rewards. Stay the course. Hold fast, child of God. Though the winds howl and the tempest thunders, hold on to God. Hold to Christ Jesus. The words that weakness needs to hear. The will that weakness needs to have. Thirdly and lastly, the wonder that weakness needs to hold. This church needs to hold the wonder of Jesus Christ. As with all these letters, there is an encouragement at the end. A promise. An assurance of a future reward or honor. You know, we may be weak in this life. We may have little strength by the world's standards. But as we lay on our bed of suffering, never forget who you are in Christ Jesus. Hold your head up high, Church of Philadelphia. You may be small and you may look like you're on your last leg, uh, your little blip 
on the monitor of heart may be getting fainter and fainter, but never forget who you are, church. You are the sons and daughters of the living God who will not forsake us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will always be with us. We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us and washed us in His blood. Never forget who you are. Never forget the wonder of what is to come. Notice He said He will make them. Verse number 12. The one who conquers, I will make Him. Notice this. A pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall He go out of it. I will write on Him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And we'll get into that in a second. But notice what He'll make them. This is so interesting. The church that is the weakest, you have little power. Not a lot to you, church at Philadelphia. They had only little strength. But that is all that is needed when it comes to the economy of God. Dr. John Phillips said this, and I love quoting Dr. John Phillips. This is what he said. The Lord promises to make these feeble ones into a temple pillar the very symbol of solidarity, stability, and strength. God will use these feeble ones to support an aspect of His eternal purpose and will undergird them. They will help uphold the eternal worship of the ages in the lofty halls of heaven. Little weak church. Everybody clicks their tongues down at the associational meeting of the seven churches. But God says, you little weak church, I'm going to make you a powerful pillar in my temple. You'll never leave. You'll be close to me. And you will be an integral part of the worship of God through all the ages. I said it before, let the cat out of the bag, but little is much when God is in it. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. For about eight years, I've, uh, years ago when I pastored Gethsemane, Bethany, the last pastor I had, I had a, 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 a wonderful uh, person that was in that church. I got to pastor them for about eight years. It was Sister Mildred Brown. Sister Mildred Brown was a charter member of that church in the 70's and she had been there over 40 years. When I got there she was in her 90's and she came every single service, Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night. My deacon would go by and pick her up and every, every time he'd pick her up and bring her, bring her to church. She looked like she was so weak and frail. I mean, she come in the church, I mean, walked like this. It took forever for her to get to her seat. About three, nine rows back, I know where you sit. About nine rows back is where she sit on this left side, or my left on the end. Mildred Brown, you look like if you sneezed around her, the impact of your sneeze would just knock her down. I mean, she was so frail and small and looked like she just weak as water. But that was her outward appearance. Inwardly, she was a giant of faith, a giant of devotion, of prayer, and love for God. She might have looked like a little old lady, a frail lady on the outside, but if she looked on the outside, 
what she was spiritually on the inside, she would have looked like a University of Georgia bulldog linebacker. I mean, she would have been towering seven and a half feet tall of nothing but sheer lean muscle if what her spiritual life was on the inside became manifest on the outside. If you are weak, if you are limited, hold fast to God. He will make you more than you ever dreamed that you could be. Notice second of all, He will make them, He will mark them. He says that I will give right on Him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, would come down from my, uh, from my God out of heaven, and my own name. Jesus said He'll put His own name on them. There are references in the book of Ezekiel and other Old Testament passages that talk about the marking upon the forehead of individuals of the kingdom of God that distinguish them as God's own. Here we're told that these believers will be marked by God. Marked with the name of their God. The name of the God to to show that they are God's children. That they belong to Him. The name of the new Jerusalem. That city, you can read about that in the book of Revelation. That city that descended out of heaven to be the residence of God and the Lamb and the bride. This name that is described here may be needed in order to access. There's very much a lot of mystery behind this name and why they would be marked uh, with the name of God. It's very much a mystery. Well, we do know what the name is. I mean, we we don't even know what the name is. Jesus said, my, my own new name. Given a name which no man knows. We know that in Revelation 19. He's got a name written that no man knows but His Father. He's got a new name. When the queen of Sheba came to Solomon and said, Behold, the half was not told me the same can be applied to us. Listen, there are going to be things about Jesus that we're going to learn for all of eternity. But know this, He's made a claim to you. You're healed. No matter how weak, no matter how frail and how small, cleave and hold to Him, for He has claimed you as His own. Believers that will belong that belong to Christ have a special relationship with Him and will be citizens of that new Jerusalem. Warren Wiersbe. Years ago, uh, my pastor had Warren Wiersbe of Moody Bible Institute and a lot of the books. Have you, many of you have, have you ever had those book, B book series or tremendous works of Warren Wiersbe? My pastor had. This is my, my pastor in which I was called under. He, he had Warren Wiersbe come preach in his church in North Carolina. And he was at a restaurant before the service, took Warren Wiersbe out to eat. And, and in, that, in that, while they were sitting there at that table, uh, there was a couple that came by that recognized my pastor and Dr. Wiersbe. And they began to strike up a conversation and they began to describe what church they go to. And... Uh, uh, from that, uh, they, they, they began to tell of this church that they went to over in this place in North Carolina. And, and my pastor said, yeah, I know where that is. I preached at a little church down the road from there, uh, at, you know, at such and such, down, just a little church down the road from there. A little while later, not to make a scene of the whole thing, but after the couple had left, Warren Wiersbe reached out with his hand and put it on my pastor's hand and said this, there are no little churches. True. 
true. The weak church at Philadelphia was a big deal in Jesus' eyes. <laughs> Faith Community Church, you're a big deal in Jesus' eyes. You're a big deal. And I, I believe that God has set a, set a door in front of us. Set a place in here that we can have an impact for the glory of God. Just don't be disheartened. Take strength from the words of Jesus. His care, His protection. Have your will set like the church of Philadelphia. We will keep and guard His Word. You know, these thoughts lead me to a final summary. You have that, Brother Roger. Listen to the final summary. Jesus' words to this weak church should whisper encouragement for us to hold on to Him with our hearts and open our eyes to His leading. Hold on to Him, church, and open our eyes to what He has in front of us today. Let's all stand to our feet for a word of prayer, moment of invitation. You may be this morning, and you know, every one of these letters to the churches is a letter to the individual, because the individual makes up the church. And so this, church, this letter to a church is speaking to us. Maybe you feel weak this morning. Maybe you feel disheartened. Listen, take courage from the words of Jesus. Maybe you'd like to come and pray and say, God, I, I just want to lay hold of this for myself. I need your encouragement. I need your strength this morning. You, you respond. You may be here lost. You don't know the Lord Jesus. I pray you repent and believe the gospel. Come to know Jesus Christ in saving faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You. God, I thank You uh, for this letter and how it speaks to our hearts. And I pray uh, that, you would, uh, that You would deal with our hearts accordingly. God, I pray You'd strengthen and encourage us. God, I, I, I cannot help, I cannot help but identify with this letter. God, we feel so weak sometimes. God, I know that You see us now. I know that You know where we are. God, let us be judged in Your eyes to be holding to Your Word. To have a patient endurance. We may have contradiction among us in our own hearts. Satan whispers so many discouraging things. God, help us to have a, a patient continuance. Let us cleave to You and know that You're going to do great things among us. Father, I pray you glorify Yourself through the preached Word of Your, uh, through Your Word, through the preached Word of God. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.